Kia ora, aotearoa, and welcome to Generally Famous, a Stuff podcast. I'm Simon Bridges, and every week I talk to a generally famous but always interesting guest about life, love, and what makes them tick. Today, I'm very excited. One of the world's best known and most kept, I think the most kept netballers of all time, with shooting percentages really seen in netball, probably our greatest, most popular silver fern ever with a remarkable story from growing up in South Africa, meeting Mandela, becoming a fair dinkum Kiwi. Welcome, Irene Van Dyke. Morning, Simon. Thank you very much for having me. Hey, it's a real pleasure. I feel like you're one of these people we people think they know. So I, I presume you, I mean, I got this not always in a good way, but, but I presume it's an obstacle course for you when you go to the supermarket because people stop and it's like, we know you, you're Irene and you're six foot tall. So it's kind of like you can't hide. Absolutely. All the time. And you nailed it on the head. I think it's because I'm so tall. You know, I yeah. come down the street and they're like, oh yeah, there she is. And um, I think and they're the- talking to you like you're a long lost friend. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, it is honestly. And because I'm so social, I hook up a conversation with anyone and everyone that looks like they want to chat to me. So I'm always up for a conversation. It's like a big compliance cost. It'd be <laughs> an hour of your day every day. <laughs> So does that mean like are you like I mean I'm I'm a weirdo so I'm sure you're not a weirdo but do you then do you stay at home because you can't be bothered with dealing with that or are oh, you Oh no I'm very social and I think you know what early in my netball career I realized that something that would take me 2 minutes would potentially stay with some people for a lifetime. And yeah, it is, it's like when when I meet Richie McCall for the first time, you know, like yes. it is moments like that that you would remember for the rest of your life. And it. Except it, it's hard to get many words out of Richie. <laughs> I know, but you know what? <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't would say much. Not, he would probably not even know who I am. But to me, it is going to be a memory that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. So it's. Oh no, he wouldn't know who you are. But but hey, what I'm saying, he's a man of few words. I mean, we, we you know, if we could get him on the podcast, we would. But I'm just, I, it would be hard work filling an hour, I think, with Richie. Hey, you grew up on a farm, but you've said before. I, I heard this in one of the things I've heard with you, you know, I think you said it was a very different upbringing than like a Kiwi childhood. Tell us about it. Yes. You know, when you're on a farm in South Africa, you don't have friends really, and you have to pretty much play with whoever is around. With our farm, because mum and dad had a job, they didn't have capability to work the farm. And it, it, it was it was quite a big farm. So mum was a matron at um, Vereniging Hospital and dad was a mechanic. So we had um, the people that lived on the farm. They worked the farm and they whatever they made off the farm, obviously that is what they did and that they lived off that. So Cause, And I presume it's different because I, I presume it's like the Aussie outback and that they're big farms. Yeah, much it bigger is. than in New Zealand because it's a bit drier and all of that stuff. Is it? Yes, yeah. and there is something of everything on those farms. Like it's not yeah. a, it's here you have your dairy farms and you know your deer farms and that. But we, in South Africa, it's pretty much you have to grow everything and anything on the farms. Wild animals that could eat you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you? not that. Not that deep in the in the country. 
No, okay. Oh, that's disappointing. That would have been good. Um, and and to state the obvious, what's also true. Sorry, it's probably impolite to talk about a woman's age, but you're um, you're about to turn fifty one. Have I got that right? I know. Yes. And so this was during apartheid. But for you as a kid, I presume it's like anything. If you're growing up in something that's unusual, looking back on it, it was just what it was. Absolutely. And it was the way I was brought up. Like I, I played with whoever was around. It didn't matter what colour you were and who, where you're from. You just play with who you are. Growing up, I had no idea what apartheid was. And it wasn't until I kind of, because, you know, you, you have your white schools, you have your black schools, you have your English schools, you have your Afrikaans schools. It, it was just the way it was. And it's just the mm. way you've been brought up. And it's um, it's not looking <laughs> until you look back and you're like, holy moly, what, what were they thinking right from the start? Those people, yeah. you know, that that ran that country. It's what were you thinking? But and how did when did you sort of when did you think were you in your teens or when you realised um, not this was wrong? Although clearly, you know, we all agree it's wrong. But when did you realise that it was quite different from anything else going on in the in the West at least? When I went studying, my first year studying, and they right. made a massive thing of a coloured girl that was in our hostel for the first time because I went studying to become a teacher. And in our hostel, they allowed a coloured person to be in our hostel and they made a massive thing. And I couldn't understand. Like, it's just, it was just weird how they made a massive thing about it. And, and you look back and you think, because you didn't question anything, because that is just the way life is. Or I was probably too oblivious to anything happening. But yes, it wasn't until then that I realized, holy moly, this is just incredible. And then obviously being in the netball world and being allowed to play international netball in 1994. And we had an all white team who traveled for mm. the first couple of years. And it wasn't until 1996, I think, where we had the first black player. And wow. again, they made a massive thing about the black players and they deserve to be there. Like, yes. you know, look, the conversations around that era was more about, oh, it is the quota system and they have to have like five black people in a team. And some people questioned, were they good enough? But we were lucky enough in our netball team that the black players that were selected deserved to be there and they were in the starting lineup so it was yes it was a weird time to go to grow through it and of course South Africa was isolated wasn't it so you were playing like MPXC style um, netball uh, in your country but you weren't allowed to play internationally because South Africa was an international pariah Yes, we had no idea what was going on in the international arena, especially in the netball scene. So we would play, um, all the regions would play and um, like NBC, get together once a year for a week where you play against one another and decide who is the who is the best region. And then every every time, though, they pick a tournament team, which is the South African team, but they were never allowed to go and play international netball until 1994. So I was I was privileged enough to be in that 1994 team that that were allowed to go and play international netball. And in 1995, you're playing in Birmingham at the World Champs and sadly for New Zealand that things had opened up because you beat New Zealand and you were instrumental in that. <laughs> 
Oh, to be quite honest, we had Joyce Brown and Yvonne Willering that came to South Africa to help us um, prepare for the 95 World Cup. And it was incredible to, we absolutely adored the Silver Ferns. We, we looked at videos, you know, um, isolating Sandra Edge to see how she swings the ball around that circle edge because her speed, her accuracy and her tenacity around that circle edge was just mind-blowing. So we absolutely adored them. And when we hit um, Birmingham in 95, it was when we played the Silver Ferns, we were like, okay, this is going to be a tough game. Let's just go for it. And by beating them, it was like we celebrated so much because in our mind the Silver Ferns were the best team at that tournament and as soon as we beat them it was like we've won the World Cup it was just unbelievable and you did you beat us but you didn't win what was it Aussie or who, who won that I can't yes Aussie won yeah, and they smacked yeah, us down that yeah. next day <laughs> <laughs> those terrible Aussies and um and so that's sort of that and and you had a mixed race team um and, I mean, one of the other things that struck me is, as a result of that, I think I've got this right, uh, Irene, you meet one of the 20th century's biggest figures, Nelson Mandela. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, going back to South Africa, we got recognised by Nelson Mandela for our achievement in the 1995 World Cup. And it was, honestly, you you read about people that has this mana and this, you know, um, aura around them. And I was lucky enough to be invited to this dinner where he presented us with a South African medal. And you don't realize how tall he was, but he was my height. And he, he was just the most beautiful, strong, powerful man. And it was just, yeah, it was, prob it was probably one of my highlights was meeting him, listening to him and just seeing him and how he made everyone feel so valued. When you see that surreal, because I can hear your cat meowing in the background. It's like he or she is also inspired by Nelson Mandela. So there you go. Seriously, um, don't ever get a cat. They don't die. He's twenty. <laughs> twenty. Well, yes. yeah. No, it's um. That is it. That's a serious old cat. Um, because you're right. I mean, I've been um, I suppose lucky enough to meet the odd US president and many prime ministers and so on. But they don't all exude a sort of a sense of wow, you know. Um, but but just a, a few do, and and my sense is Mandela was in that category. Do you, did he talk to you? Do you remember him sort of saying something to you like? Love, you've got um, dandruff on your shirt, or you know, was there anything like that? No, thank goodness not. No, I. It, it was more just handing over the medal and saying how how proud he was of our netball team for for beating the Silver Ferns and being number two in the world at that point in time. Uh, and he understood, you know, so so um, well that that the power of sport and you know, obviously rugby and others other codes as well. Um, you you kept playing um, for South Africa actually for for another um, handful of years, seventy two games. Um, but my question is, I suppose, despite the the promise of the end of a you know a racist regime um, in South Africa, 
how did South Africa actually change in that time? Because I suppose to, to come out with it, it wasn't all good, right? I mean, you know, if we look back now, it's pretty sad in a way. Um, well, not in a way, definitely what's happened with South Africa. But were you sort of aware of what was going on? And, you know, um, yeah, how, how did it change? Um, I think my awareness grew more as I played international netball because you go overseas and you see certain things and you see behaviors of people and you see cultures of people and you experience different things. So you are more aware of things. Um, But up until 1994, I was oblivious to anything really that happened. But um, going overseas, you you do pick up on things. And going back to South Africa, you're like, man, we are so far behind. And I know um, when Nelson Mandela became president that there was a, a shift, a complete shift in South Africa because all of a sudden we had this leader, black, white, green, any color, everyone adored him. He was the savior of South Africa and, and everyone relied on him to get South Africa on track. But unfortunately, he passed away, and I'm not sure the leaders that followed after him has the same mana and has the same respect from everyone in South Africa. So, And that's where the the conflict again came in. And so I I think it's going to hit rock bottom before it can come back up, which is really, really sad because South Africa has so much to offer. It's such a beautiful, rich, rich country. But I just don't think the people in South Africa actually realize how beautiful and how how incredible that country can be. It's not until you're away and you look back and you're like, man, these so, they've got so much to offer, but they have no idea about it. What, what do you miss about South Africa when you look back? Is there something now? I mean, you know, people say the silly stuff in New Zealand. It's like you know, if you're in the UK, you miss the Vogel's toast or I don't know. What, <laughs> are there things you miss about South Africa? You think, you know, I really that, – that's something I we don't get in New Zealand and I would like or I think the family family time is potentially the the thing that I miss most but um all the other things you can get in New Zealand there are so right. many South African shops here yeah the what is it they saw those long spindly sausages and various other Budapest yeah. and Bolton yeah, all and pup and yeah. all those kind of things yes. <laughs> yeah the landscape you miss that. No, New Zealand's hmm. beautiful. Oh, yeah. you just travel out. We've got a caravan, and honestly, like when we pack up on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, it's you enter a different world every single time, and it's just gorgeous. Where do you go? Where's your favourite? If you've got a camping ground somewhere or something that's... Yeah, we've got Puriri Beach out mm. um, on the East Coast, which is beautiful. But in New Zealand, Simon, we are so lucky that you can literally drive an hour and yes. a half and the whole landscape change. Irene is in, is in Napier um, uh, after a good amount of time in Wellington. So that's, um, yeah, that's you know, you're absolutely right. I, I suppose what I was asking you earlier, in a funny sort of way, I was asking you this question. Why did you move to New Zealand and what was it, 2000? Um, I did get an offer to go to Australia and yeah. well, I... you could have been an Aussie. What was you thinking <laughs> yeah. there? Could have been playing in Queensland, is it? In 1999, they wanted you. Yes, they did. But um, I think it was in 1994 when we arrived in New Zealand for the first time playing the Fisher and Paykel Cup. It was... 
arriving into Wellington, you had the sea on the one side, the hills on the other side. It was a ripper day in the capital, and it was just stunning. It happens every so often. I know, not often, but <laughs> that day was stunning. And I think what what I loved about the New Zealand people is they loved a barbecue, they loved to socialise very much um, like an inclusive kind of feeling that I got from the Kiwis and I just loved the culture right from the start and I was like, this is it. I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm simply on a surprised it was Wellington that did it for you. I'm sorry to my 23 Wellington listeners, and I've got a lot of friends there. But you know, it's it's coming from warm, sunny South Africa. I mean, one thing is this right, or have I made this up? You, you would you would have to carry a gun in public even back then in South Africa. Oh, absolutely! I had a 32 special. And it was, you know, it was a little, it, it was a little gun that obviously could fit in my purse. And someone asked me if I would have had the guts to use it, and probably not if I was on my own. But if if Bianca was in trouble, I probably would have used it because you know what? Every Sunday after church, we would go to um, my dad would put out like targets for us, and we had like five guns. And you had to be able to shoot all five of those guns, and you have to be accurate. So he puts out, you know, like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a good shot, Siren. Uh, <laughs> would you still be a good shot? Oh, God, no. I think I'd freak out if I have to hold a gun now. That's, is that right? That, isn't, that, isn't that amazing? It's so um, uh, different. And anyway, you, uh, you, you're you over here for the Coca-Cola Cup. You played for six months. Then, then actually South Africa sort of... Um, in quotes, rejected you because they wouldn't let you back into the team, right? Am I right? Because you'd sort of broken the rules or they felt you had. And so you had to make a decision. We made the right decision by all New Zealanders. But it was a massive thing to do because um, your dad had passed, I think. But you, you know, you've got a mum back in South Africa. You're 28, so, you know, not not over the hill. But you're not young. It's not like you're doing it when you're 15 or something. You're married. You've got a young child. Yes. Was it co- complicated or did you say, no, we're doing it? It was It was huge at that point in time. Luckily, when I played in the World Cup in 99, um, Cathy Doyle came over. She was the president of um, Wellington Nepal at that point in time. She said to me, come over to New Zealand and play for six months. So I did that. And um, in April, our South African president at that point in time rang me and said, look, you haven't been in South Africa. There's a tour coming up. We will potentially not pick you because we don't really have to, we, we don't want to pick people that are not in the country and that hasn't been playing in South Africa, which was fair enough. And I said to her, what is the chance? How long are you not going to pick me for? And she was like, well, it's indefinite. So I got the kind of feeling that, yeah, that's my time, really. So um, I made myself available for the Silver Ferns and I got selected for the Silver Ferns in um, July that year. But luckily, mum was here with me. So, you know, and mum said to me, I can't see you going back to South Africa. And when your mother tells you something, you listen. Yeah. And she, I rang Christy and I said, come over for a holiday. And he said to me, you're not coming back, are you? I was like, just come for a holiday and see what it's like. So he came over, loved the experience, loved the country, loved the people. And he went back and packed up and 
that's when we came over and it's um yeah best decision that we've made I mean look it's uh you're you're just an amazing example and an advertisement for immigration and what you know what what New Zealand needs I got two more questions on this then we'll talk some netball I mean um how's being a Kiwi changed you and do, do you I, I I think the answer is yes to this but do, do you feel like a proper Kiwi or and or did this happen overnight or was it something you sort of happened slowly and you thought you know now I've kind of been here so long I'm more Kiwi than anything else what's that do you give us a sense of that Oh, I felt like a Kiwi as soon as the media accepted me, really, because I had yeah. a rough time when I made myself Yeah, Paul available. Holmes gave you a bit of a going over, I remember. <laughs> yeah, they gave me a hard time, and it was it was, it was was hard because you try to tell the people that you're not here for a hit and run. Like, this is a lifestyle change. I'm bringing my husband and my child, and, you know, I want to make a living here, and, and I want to feel safe and happy, and um, I think once – once the media realized that I was here to stay, it was yeah. just, yeah, it was just all guns blazing. It was, I felt at home, I, everyone loved me and the netball was going great and we won and we had world champs and it was, yeah, it was. Actually, have you been back to South Africa any time like post-COVID or? Not post-COVID. The last right. time we went back to South Africa was in 2015. Right. I love South Africans in New Zealand, right? I, good God-fearing, hard-working people, industrious, you know, sporty, all of those things. Do, do you think there's, and I'm not trying to gotcha or anything, but do you think, is there any prejudice against South Africans here still? Or that wasn't your experience? No, it, I, I I, didn't feel any anything like that. Although I, um, I was asked something the other day and someone commented on social media, She's not even a Kiwi. Why do you listen to her? And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, you get the odd ones that would, would throw you uh, under the bus. But then, again, these 99.99% of the people who who accept you for who you are and realize that, you know, you want to do, do well and you want to be successful in your adopted country. And, yeah, people are just normally really nice. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, tagline there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. On. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Netball, you were a massive part of turning around uh, New Zealand netball and, and the Silver Ferns. And I think of the, the world champs in Kingston in 2003. So we won our first big competition since I was a kid. Um, what was it like? I think because it became part of um, normal TV, um, you know, the, mm. the, the awareness of netball after the 99 World Cup has skyrocketed and all of a sudden you could either watch netball or rugby or cricket. You know, netball, yes. did, the, the profile of netball grew quite significantly. And um, 
it was quite nice to to be recognised and to be seen as you know on par with the rugby with the rugby guys. So it was it yep. was really nice that that New Zealand actually embraced women's sport. You, you know, you, you're mate, six foot four, national na- natural athleticism, um, but but I suppose what I want to suggest is you. you Learning about you and, and knowing a bit about you, they were they were necessary preconditions for being a great netballer. But the key to your twenty years at the top, um, and you know, nearly six thousand goals, ninety percent accuracy, all the things that you know pe- people know, they were rare back then. But it seems to me it's your work rate and and, and it was your commitment to changing and continuing to improve. Is that, I mean, don't be humble. Is that what you reckon? Or what's, what, what, I suppose I'm asking, what made you a top netballer? And tell us a bit about what a top netballer looks like. Um, so my netball, my netball journey was definitely not linear. You know, when you get to under 12, you get selected for the rep team or then under 14 and you get, you're in the system and you grow and you play for your country. Mine wasn't like that. I played trials for every year group and I failed every year until the last year of school. And I, for the first time, I got selected for a rep team when I turned 18. Now, saying that, I did grow 20 centimetres between the ages of 16 and 18. So I was the biggest bird around at that point in time (laughs) because I was this height at my last year of school. So, of course, they were going to pick me. I'm as tall as the goalpost. Yes. You know, like, it's a no-brainer. You didn't even have to be coordinated, right? Well, I wasn't at that point in time, but I, I won't tell anyone that. And so I was quite a late developer. And then when I got asked to come to New Zealand to play, um, Dame Lois said to me, this is your gym program. And I was like, a gym? Who the hell goes to gym? I'm a netballer. I'm not a, I'm not a bodybuilder. And she said, yes, gym work is part of it. And I was like, no way. So I was 28 when I went to the gym for the first time. So my body was well and truly developed. So there was no way. And I think that is something that helped me not being injured at all during my netball career is the fact that I, yes. you know, I ran and I, I did what I had to do to play good netball, but I never pushed my body to the point where, you know, it couldn't handle it. And I was lucky enough to have Hubers as my um, fitness trainer in Wellington because I, for the first time I had a one-on-one person because I've never been to a gym. He literally had to teach me how to squat and lunge and fall and without getting injured. So he was instrumental in my in my earlier years in New Zealand. And um, yes, it is. It's it's just incredible how your how my netball journey played out, and the so those things that was like a that was a big jump for you. Is that what you're telling me? You know that sort of you know you'd you'd relied on your natural height and talent, and then and but then you're over here, 28. You go to the gym and you and you, and that that takes you to another level. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, and and I and yeah. I think too the fact that. Um, I was al- I always thought of training if if I trained this hard and my opponent trained this hard we're going to be on par and I always had to do extra in my mind to have peace of mind that I know that I can 
outperform them. So if you shoot 20 goals, I'm going to shoot 30 because I want to be better than you. If you run 20 meters, I'm going to run 30 because I want to be fitter than you. So, so, and every time I, and I don't have, I haven't had anyone particular in, in, in mind, but I was just thinking if anyone in my position did this, I would have to do more to, to be the best the whole time. And then playing against Liz Ellis and Catherine Harvey Williams, it felt like every time we played, they had my number. They, they were smashing me down. And I had to think of things to change for them not to take me down, to, to think what, what am I going to, throw at them next time to to stay ahead of the time. And of course, um, you know, the story is, you know, you're doing 300 goals a day, your husband's putting the broom up and you're having to go higher and and he's, he's um, and I think this is, you know, sounds like absolutely what happened, you know, he's constantly analysing what you're doing and providing feedback. So was your, was your hubby a, um, was he a hard critic? He is a very analytical kind of person, incredibly smart, and when things have a sequence, he can see the sequence, and he can see when something is out of out of place, and when he looks at my shot, he, he can tell me straight away, I don't even know what's wrong with my shot. He can tell me what's wrong with my shot, so analytically, it was really nice to have him around, and that's probably why our marriage has been lasting this long, because he would have <laughs> <laughs> pushed me outside my comfort zone all the time so yeah he he was instrumental especially in those earlier years you know like not making life easy making me shoot without seeing the goal post and those kind of things we were talk- talking off tape Irene and Chris you've been married 30 years um so that's <laughs> is that right yes, 30 years yes. it's amazing and um and we'll come back to that maybe um I want to talk about retiring you're in your 40s. I mean, this is a long, successful career, and we've already done the, you know, most capped and all of these things. And you said at the time it was like a piece of your heart had been ripped out. I mean, tell me about retiring from international. Um, when you play sport and you become successful and people know you because you play netball, that becomes your identity. That is who you are. And I feel when I retired, I... My life has been ripped away from me because no one knows me other than me being a netballer. Mm. Who am I? What am I? Where am I yes. going to fit in? Yeah, it was it, it it was really really hard. And I think if I had a a personality that got depressed, that would be that would have been the time where I yes. would have hit rock bottom because all of a sudden my identity has been taken away from me and I. And I, and I had no idea where I was going to go and who I am. Who am I going to become? And it's not until a few years later that you, you kind of start to, you know, you find your feet and you find what you're passionate about and where you want to go and you apply for jobs and you're successful or unsuccessful. And it, it literally takes you through a journey to, to try and find your other self pretty much after being a professional sports person. Maybe you need a podcast or something, Irene. That's that's what I've done. And what are you? Um, not not blow by blow, obviously. But I mean, given that, and and I, you know, I identify with that a lot. You know, you're known for something, and then you've sort of got a, and you've obviously stayed 
hugely involved in, in netball and you, you said at the time, you know, you want to keep playing until the wheels literally come <laughs> off um, and hopefully they haven't come off yet. But what have you done in the last 10 years? What I mean, what sort of, we have, it's a massive question, but <laughs> how, how have you found it? <laughs> so after after my professional netball career, I um, I dabbled a, a little bit into a triathlon. Don't ever do a triathlon if you can't swim. Right. That is detrimental yeah. to your health. Yeah, that's the bit I didn't like. You're in the ocean. You can't stand yeah. when you're tired. I clearly and didn't people are think- punching you at the start and, oh. you know, pushing you under and awful. Oh, my God. They are vicious. Seriously, yes. everyone kicks. Yeah. You can't breathe. Yeah. Oh, it's just horrific. No. So don't- if you Anxiety got, attack stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, don't, don't do- I did drugs. one, the Xterra is it in Rotorua and- um, I've, I've redeemed myself slightly since then. Don't worry, I haven't done one. I told you off here. I'm really unfit at the moment. But um, I did that one. I got out because they were punching me and I wasn't equipped for it. I'd just been swimming in a nice little pool by myself and um, and I got out. So this is what happens. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I can totally relate to that. And it's, yes, I, I was like, rookie mistake. But, you know, you want to push yourself because you've just come out of this competitive Life and you fi- you want to find something that's going to push you slightly outside your boundaries, but don't mm. ever do a triathlon. Find something else. Um, yeah. And then in, yeah. in my <laughs> in my personal life, I um, worked for Netball Central Zone as the yep. junior development officer for the La for uh, from 2015 to 2000 and. 1920 and mm. um, do the Future Ferns program. So that is the best program in the world. So um, for year one to eight players where they play um, modified games on a third, then two thirds, then they play the seven aside when they get to year seven and eight. Um, and I promoted that and delivered it all through the lower North Island. And for the last year and a half, um, I am working for Netball New Zealand as the participation manager, which I love. And I think in the last year and a half, I have learned more about netball and what makes netball great. And I get pushed outside my comfort zone every single day because it is, it's writing resources, it's um, people that need clarity around rules and regulations and mm. um, writing policies and guidelines and those kind of things. So it's literally, I've, I've yeah, pretty much removed from the game as such, but um, more so around what will netball look like for the next 10 years and how can we make sure that it stays relevant and that we stay intact with our communities to make sure that we're innovative and we are fresh and that Mm. we don't want any other sport to come near the popularity of netball. I'm going to ask you about that, but what I hear from you is, you know, it's quite – it's very interesting. I mean, you, your husband, Christy, who's, you know – uh, a regional, you know, um, a cricket coach. Um, your daughter Bianca's a netball. I mean, you guys are a sports family. Um, that's that's what you do. Oh, it is definitely what we do. And I can tell you what, the conversations we have at the moment is absolutely epic, especially around, you know, the balance is better and cricket that takes a whole day. And you're like, where does that land? So yes, it is. It is absolutely fantastic. And it is really nice to have those those conversations around performance and community sport and, you know, what it looks like and 
Yeah. It's well, fun. let me ask you some quick fires on netball, which I, I, I think actually go to what you've just been saying. What's your, um, firstly, your proudest moment in, in the sport as an international? 2010 Commonwealth Games, because I was privileged enough to be the flag bearer for New Zealand. And I yeah, had, amazing. I lead the New Zealand team into the stadium. And that was just incredibly proud. And in 2010 was the year where we played the final against Australia. And mm. it was the longest game that has been recorded. So it was 84 minutes and we beat the Aussies. Fantastic. What about your lowest point? You think back and say, ah, that really was a bad patch. <laughs> lowest point is, I I was lucky enough that my netball career has been absolutely incredible and I, I've, I've been successful and I, I've been accurate and, but the hardest, the hardest game or the hardest day for me was the day that my mum passed away and Magic played the Mystics in the semi-final of um, the Trans-Tasman competition and so mum passed away at five minutes past six in the morning and that night we had to play the Mystics and I, that whole day has been a blur and that whole day all I, all I can remember is I had Nolene Toto around me. I had Laura Langman and Casey Corpua around me the whole time. And I don't know how I came through that day, but we won against the Mystics. And funny thing is, Anna Harrison normally gets the rebounds and I missed a shot and the rebound came straight for me and I caught the ball and I sunk the final shot and I don't know how it happened and I swear that my mum just guided that ball into mm, my hands. Amazing, amazing. I mean, I just, I can't help but say this having you talk about the magic. So I'm disappointed you never moved and lived in the Waikato Bay of Plenty, which is, look, along with um, the Auckland region, the best regions in New Zealand. But <laughs> You've, you've sort of you, you haven't quite got that right. They're they're sunnier, Irene. They've just they've got more going on. You know, look, Hawke's Bay's nice. Wellington's okay, <laughs> but you missed out there. Um, state of the New Zealand game now, both at a top level and and at grassroots com compared to when you were at the top. I mean, you obviously got a unique ability to sort of know this. So yeah, state of the game now as as, a, as opposed to then. 110% in better hands and moving forward, we are lucky enough that Netball New Zealand is really um, forward thinking um, and in that whole, you know, diversity, equity and, you know, just looking forward to what Netball will look like and how it's moving forward. I think we are in a very, very good space and I think... Um, so I think I know the answer to this one then, given what you've just said, but are we still footing it internationally? 100%, without a doubt, yes. And I think the fact that we play our own players, that we cultivate our own players, sees a lot for our competition. If you look at Aussie and England, they've got a lot of imports in their competition, whereas we st stay quite authentic into and rebuilding or building our own players. So yes, we are we are in very good stead. And, and 
you know, the state of the global game, because my sense, I, I don't know this, right? I'm far from an expert on world netball, but is it keeping up? You know, it's got the sort of Commonwealth origins and so on. Is it keeping up with the glitz and the appeal of some other truly international games? I and mean, we're a bit, you know, we've got the, the Women's FIFA World Cup soon in New Zealand. It, it, is it keeping up? Oh, absolutely. And I, th- I think the fact that we play, you know, like um, we play Fast Five as well. So we've got the World Cup, the traditional game, seven-a-side World Cup. But then we also have the five-a-side um, World Cup, which is here in Christchurch again this year. So I do think innovatively, definitely. And I think if um, we think about spectator enjoyment and the fact that it's in a close vicinity, I do think we footed with the best. Could you have been a professional footballer? No. No, I'm way too unco for that. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, you were getting 90-something percent back at a time when others weren't. You can't be too unco. Have Um, you seen these long levers, Simon? (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you you might have made a good... um, no, I better watch what I was going to say there, actually. No, I was going to say, I could see he's a boxer. That reach, man. Boom. Well, what do they do now? MMA or some of these? It just shows how, yeah. I did the violent. fight for life in 2015. Yes. Scariest moment of my freaking life was getting into that ring. And my Were you fi- good or? Pardon? Were you good? Yes, 42 seconds. Boom. You knocked your, the other out. No, no, the the ref stopped the fight. They called it off. You're a mach- You're an animal. You've told me about your gun shooting, and now you've just decked someone. I mean, you're, you're a very violent person, Irene, for a Christian woman. I am the gift that just I mean, keeps I, on giving. Yes. Um, up and comers to watch in New Zealand and globally. Give me, I don't know, give me two or three names. Um, Grace Noicki. Yep. Is definitely one of our young up and coming. She'd be compared to you, hasn't she? Oh, she's right. way better than me. Right. Yeah. How old's she now? What would she 20? be? Right. Yeah. And she's got an amazing sort of immigrant story as well, hasn't she? I think I'm right. Have I got that? My th- I'm thinking of the right person, aren't I? Yeah. 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 She's definitely um, one of our better young ones coming through. Um, there are quite a quite a few young ones that are putting, you know, putting their hands up. Um, we've got um, Michaela Sokolitz-Beetson. She is another girl that is definitely um, putting her hand up. And then we've got Maddie Gordon. I call her Flash Gordon because she is, man, she can play four different positions, and she has impact left, right, and centre. She is fit, she's fast, she's tenacious, she's gutsy, she's everything that you want to see. Outstanding. Hey, um, let's just talk life for a moment or three here. Um, we've talked about Christy. I, you know, I'm always interested in the other the other half. He's the man of mystery in your background. Um, you married him when you were 21. I know. You're yes. a child bride. My <laughs> wife was 22, to be fair, so... He, you know, plucked you out at 21. So that is, as we've said, 30 years ago. What's been the secret to keep you two going for so long? Um, in South Africa, you know, um, just saying, Christy was my first boyfriend as well. So he's the one and only. And um, I think because you grow up in South Africa um, extremely religious that you don't, 
you know, you don't play around and things like that. Yep. So when you have the chosen one, that is it. And he was luckily the chosen one. And um, I think the secret is being able to do things together, but have the ability to do things separately as well. Yes. Respecting one another and giving one another space to grow and to learn together. So you're basically saying don't spend time with them and you'll stay married. No, yeah. But, well, yes. You <laughs> no, know, I, tra- <laughs> I travelled quite a bit in our earlier, younger years. So Nepal has taken me all over the place. And you, you need to spend time together, obviously, but time apart makes you grow fonder and makes you realize how lucky you are to have one another. So, um, and respecting one another. And I think the most important thing is communication. You know, talk, talk about things. When things aren't working and, you know, talk about it. I presume he's tall. No, he's short. Is that right? He's, is that right? Um, he's one one point eight five, and I'm right. one point nine. So yeah, he's yeah, he's not short, short, but he's shorter than me. Yes, well, you know, well, that was not that wouldn't be really hard. No, right? I mean, that's not that's not. A, I'm I'm somewhat shorter than you, Irene, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I'm not intimidated by powerful, important woman. So, you know, that's just putting that out there. Um, and you mentioned growing up religious. I mean, is, is, is your Christian faith still important to you? Coming to New Zealand, it made me realise that there are people in South Africa that says they are religious, mm. but they don't practice religion, mm. you know. And I think in New Zealand, there's a lot of people that think they are not religious, but their moral values and their what they believe in mm. is more religious than than anything else. So um, I do not go to a church as such anymore, but I do believe there's a higher power and I do believe there's, there's life after. But what if, if it is a practicing thing at the moment? No, not anymore. I suppose what you're saying, there's a difference, isn't there, between religion, spirituality and faith. Yes. They're all slightly different things, aren't they? Yeah. And um, that's that's really interesting. And um, you've got one daughter, Bianca, and um, without sort of getting and making this podcast about her because she might not thank you for that, but she's um, she, she's sporty too. She is very sporty. And, you know, we look extremely similar and we are the same height. And people, when she goes for a run and people say, hi, Irene, she just waves <laughs> and, and carries on because she feels too bad to say that it's not Irene. <laughs> but, um, yes, she got a scholarship to go to America straight out, yes. out of school. So she was in San Diego for four years. And then she went to Melbourne, oh, um, Brisbane, to play netball for a year. And now she's home and she works for Hawks Bay Netball. Right, I'm going to wrap up by asking you the questions I ask other guests as well. We call this section general knowledge. I hope, Irene, you've been warned about these because if you haven't, anything could happen. If you could be somebody else for a day, who would it be? Liam Lawson. Because nice. I am a person who loves a fast car and loves speed. So I would have loved to be able to drive around 
you know, those Formula One circuits and oh, just Oh, and it's unbelievable, isn't it? So I, I take it you're some – he's been a podcast guest on Generally Famous. I, I take it you've um, you've you've been watching Drive to Survive? Oh, yes. Amazing. Oh, just incredible. Yeah. What's your most embarrassing moment? Oh, I had to think about this one because it happens quite regularly and it is incredibly, incredibly <laughs> embarrassing. So here goes New Zealand. Um, when – when I stopped playing netball, I took up running and I really enjoy running because I don't end up in the fetal position anymore. But the problem is I hit the six to eight K mark and I need a toilet. <laughs> I can see where this is going. I've been there oh too. Oh my God. I just hope that there are more people around the world that this happens to because I literally run around with these public toilets because otherwise I'd have to go bush. Yes. And that's not going to be a good sight. So, um, yes. yes, unfortunately, I, and if you see me walk in a very peculiar way, don't ask questions because <laughs> I need to get to the toilet ASAP. You know, if we were in – I used to be a Crown Prosecutor. If while we were still in that, I'd ask you more questions, but I'm going to leave it there on that one. Um, I remember run, running – you just do a lot of running, believe it or not, and, um, yeah, out in rural areas. It's much easier for men than women, isn't it? Oh. That's, that's one of those unfairnesses. It's a sort of an equity issue. Yes. If, if money was no object, what are the first three things you'd buy? The first one is an animal sanctuary with a 24-7 vet. Hmm. The second one is an open aeroplane ticket to go anywhere in the world so I can decide what I want to do with the other part of the money. And the last one is I will buy a tropical island in the Caribbean where these pina coladas flowing left, right and centre. Fantastic. I can go with all of those. They're <laughs> fantastic. That's the, you, you, did, you thought about that and you chose well, my friend. <laughs> What's the strangest tradition in your family? We don't really have strange traditions. I was thinking no. about this one. The only well, not one that, that you I... think is strange anyway. <laughs> I think it is. It would probably be on Christmas Day. Bianca and I have this, we have to do a challenge on Christmas Day. And if it is like a 30K walk, while Christy is obviously cooking Christmas dinner because he's not walking or running or doing anything with <laughs> us. So it is us doing something challenging but just the two of us, and it's normally out in the bush somewhere or hiking or doing something, and then Christy is making sure that when we get back, Christmas dinner is cooked, and then we spend the afternoon and night together. Sounds fantastic. If you could choose to stop ageing at any age, which would you choose? 35. Yeah, I'm with you. That's about where I'd go. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Perfect time of life too. Yeah. I just think yeah. 35, you're confident because you know who you are. You don't have aches and pains. You're 10 foot tall until bulletproof. It's Yeah, it's a good age. Yeah, you know it. Hey, Irene Van Dyke, it's been amazing talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on Generally Famous. You've been listening to Generally Famous, a stuff podcast. There's a new episode every Wednesday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash generallyfamous or wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, if you follow us on Apple or Spotify, any of the podcast apps, in fact, you'll get the latest episode automatically. Sounds good, right? Thanks to my producers, Chris Reed and Jen Black, and audio editor, Connor Scott. I'm Simon Bridges. I really appreciate you listening. If you liked listening to this pod, 
Help us make more like this. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.